Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. So, how many of you feel like your patients consider you the second opinion after first consulting Dr. Google? How much of your time is spent fighting through a jungle of pseudoscience and misinformation just to reach your patients? Why is it so darn hard to earn their trust? With all the talk today of fake news, the erosion of journalism, and the shallow miasma of modern media, things look a little grim. But this is pure spectrum. Simply lamenting over the state of affairs is just not what we do here. Despite these circumstances, there are some out there, particularly physicians, who are engaging these problems head-on. Today's guest is one of them. Dr. Alok Patel is a pediatrician and associate professor at Columbia in New York City. He's also a rising voice among physicians using modern media to defend and advance medicine. Alok is a regular contributor to Medscape, and he has a recurring segment on ABC News. While Alok rubs shoulders with people like Katie Kirk and Whoopi Goldberg, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty even dodging attacks and personally fighting it out on social media. This was a great episode here, folks, and one of real importance today. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Patel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, guys. I'm happy to be here. Alok, you've had quite a bit of experience in media, and that's where we wanted to start today. I mean, we've seen you on a segment on ABC News. We saw Katie Couric giving you the Heimlich Maneuver on her show. We've seen you in Medscape. Just give us an idea of how you kind of got into this and how it's helped you communicate with patients. Absolutely. It's, it's been a fun ride, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to make it grand. I can't say I have too much experience because I've, really I've really only been at it for a couple of years. But, you know, it kind of started when I was in residency. So I went to residency at Seattle Children's Hospital, phenomenal place. And the thing that is noteworthy in my experience is how many patients I ran into that had alternative views towards modern medical care. The example that everyone knows I want to talk about vaccination. And rather than kind of, you know, finger pointing and getting angry, I really asked parents all the time. I said, where are you getting your information from? You know, I know that some parents are scared, some are angry, but where is the information coming from that's resonating with them? And the one thing I learned very on was that it was not medical journals. It was anything in the popular news that either made them laugh, you know, related to them, something that really tugged at where their perspective was. And it kind of brought me back, and I said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me, because guess what? All of us do that. In entertainment, in law, if you're looking up a, a celebrity, a shirt you want to buy, you're going to go to a site that resonates with you. And so what that led me to is to really look at what are we doing in broadcast journalism? What are we doing in media as physicians that's going to reach out to the younger population that wants more information? That led me to getting on a really crazy phone call with Dan Childs, chief medical editor at ABC News in New York City. I actually had a call with him when I was in the middle of a rotation as a, as a resident, and, and I kind of went off the handle, and I told him, I want to learn more about this industry. I want to learn more about that process from high-impact journal to nightly news. Like, what is happening in that process? How are we getting the right information out? I went to ABC News in spring 2014, did a five-week internship, and I was hooked. At that point, I had this kind of grasp of how I could possibly use you know, what I consider to be some of my biggest interests and skill set to make the largest difference in public health. I went back to Seattle and said, hey, guys, I'm not going to fellowship anymore. 
And as everyone knows, in academic medicine, that is not something you say right away. <laughs> and I moved to New York City right after residency and immediately started trying as hard as I could to just get more experience. You know, I think one thing that every young, ambitious doctor wants to do is we want to we want to sprint before we learn how to crawl. And in order to actually get out there in, in journalism, I had to really take a step back and say, OK, what is it that producers want to see? What is it that the audience wants to see? You know, how can I look straight? And once I actually learned all the basics, we started to really get out there and ask how far can we go with this? And so at ABC News, you know, starting last year, January of 2016, we went out and started doing these live segments on abcnews.com slash live where we would take these modern medical topics and put really, really entertaining spins on them. And, you know, after doing all that, we started to see that, you know, the audience likes to laugh. People like to feel entertained. People also like to relate to the material. And that really got me hooked on the future of digital media and where we can really find this intersection between entertainment and public health. And obviously, you know, along the way, Writing is really a big medium to not only get your name out there, but I got interested in writing because it helped me really articulate my thoughts. And, you know, while we were talking about video projects at ABC in early 2016, I really learned that writing is not only a way to get your name out there, but it's also a way to kind of take all these thoughts that we have, all these experiences, and put them down in 600, 700 words. Because to be honest, anyone that actually studies their field can ramble for a long time. That is not what the consumer wants. And learning journalism, getting experience with various companies, and kind of learning how do you get people to read an article has been completely enlightening. I know everyone has been to a ground rounds presentation in a hospital. Everyone's been to a lecture. It's pretty esoteric information. Now try taking that topic and you know invert the pyramid and make the first paragraph your grabber, your conclusion, and your motivation for someone to read the entire article, do it in 600 words. It's not easy. You know, people spend a lifetime learning how to do this. And for me personally, learning how to do that with difficult medical topics has just opened up a huge door in learning how to pitch anything in short form. And, you know, that really gets producers excited. It gets people in the creative out, creative industry excited, too, because I think people are finally trying to see, hey, we can take this crazy health topic and turn it into a one, two, three minute video on Twitter. And, it, you know, just by being involved in this industry, that's how I wound up getting in touch with companies like Medscape. Doximity, ABC, and a few other outlets, because I think people are finally trying to trying to realize that, you know what, health influences us every single day, more so than other topics that have more of a viral impact. So all, all the organizations you just mentioned, I think, are pretty well respected, at least among, amongst our audience. But when you go online and patients are searching for information, there's a lot of noise out there, too. How do you break through that, especially when you're trying to compete with you know, uh, pseudoscience, pseudoscience nutritional advice, people who aren't qualified to give advice but have a bigger audience. How, do you, how does ABC, how does Medscape, and how do you break through that noise to build credibility and build a connection with the audience? Yeah. So this is not a seven-hour podcast, so I'm not going <laughs> to dive into the weeds of my thoughts here. And I also just have to say that the way I respond to this is, is solely my opinion. This is not something that is endorsed by any company I work for. This is just where my thought process is. So the number one thing that I think any type of medical journalism outlet does not do well is that we don't actually look where our audience currently is. We pay a lot of attention to where we want them to be. What I mean by that is, especially with physicians, you know, I'm going to blame my own kind. We often, it makes logical sense to us when we write a paper that 
somebody on the internet should read this and say, oh my gosh, that makes total sense. You know, this study improved this outcome by 80%. Everyone should understand that. But that's not the way it is in the real world. What we need, what we need to do collectively to break through the noise with these industries is you need to actually take a step back and say, hold on, what is the pulse of our audience? What do people care about? What is trending on Twitter? What, are the, what is the patient population in the Midwest that may not have gone to you know, these conferences and read this article? What do they actually think? And I think the most important case study is the 2016 election. We, we, we didn't necessarily, the election was not necessarily won on traditional standards. And you know, I hate to bring up that election when I'm talking about public health, but not every public health fight is gonna win solely on evidence-based logic. And so one huge example I'll give you, which you know, I, I, some people in the audience might get mad at me for bringing up this topic, but I feel like the number one thing physicians write about on physician-based blogs is burnout. Every physician writes about burnout. Everyone has a burnout story. Everyone thinks that burnout is this massive catastrophe. And it is, it really is. However, you know, try to flip the switch a little bit. How are you gonna, how are you gonna engage a single mother living in the Bronx that works three jobs about your physician burnout? You're not, she doesn't care. <laughs> and if you actually frame it differently, and you can take a step back and say, hey, we're burned out because I don't have enough ancillary staff to take care of all my patients. I'm going home and doing this, and I am burned out when in reality, I want to have more time to take care of you. You're then framing it in a way where someone says, okay, hold up. They're burned out, and they just want to do what they can to take care of patients. They're not burned out and whining about it. They're not saying they want to work less. They're not saying they want to make more money. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what your intention is, we went into medicine to take care of patients. And we do a very poor job of conveying that sometimes when we're just talking about topics like burnout. And so I, I would say the number one thing we need to do is pay attention to who we're talking to, no matter what the outlet is. The second thing, and this is probably one of the most important topics when it comes to physicians getting involved on social media, whether it be through an article that's shared from one of those websites, or if you're just on a Twitter handle, is to avoid the echo chamber. I think it's actually a physics term, but the term we use, when you say echo chamber now, what I mean is that if you are followed on Twitter, or if your audience is a bunch of like-minded people, by saying an opinion everyone agrees with, you're gonna get a bunch of likes and tweets, but you're not gonna change a single opinion. And so, you know, congratulations, you got your name out there, you wrote a funny article, you made someone smile, but you're not necessarily gonna engage anyone. And so I think it's okay for these outlets and for any physician out there that's writing for them to take a step back and say, you know what, how do I take a stance or how do I frame this in such a way that someone might not agree with? Someone might actually get out there and say, hold on, this is why I don't agree with you, but here's my opinion. That is actually how we drive a meaningful conversation on the internet. The, a great example of that is when we talk about healthcare reform. If you go on Twitter right now, or if you write an article that says all Americans should have healthcare insurance, no one is gonna write back and say, no, they shouldn't. But if you go out there right now and say, this is why the Affordable Care Act you know, is going to X, Y, and Z, or this is what we should do differently, or this is why the current system doesn't work, you might actually get someone to read it and comment and say, I don't agree with you, because doing that is going to change X, Y, and Z. And so I think avoiding the echo chamber is very important. We do, we do not do a good job of doing it. And I see that anytime you follow a very popular public health account on Twitter, they will just blast articles and say, a new study shows this. Why not frame the first headline and say, here's how this study affects you just to take into account that, you know, people are looking at hundreds of articles, hundreds of videos every single day. Why should they stop and read yours? All right. There's a lot to unpack there. And I do want to come back to Twitter yeah. and I want to talk about this mass media um, echo chamber. I mean, I, I agree ex with exactly what you're saying because we see it every day. Let's go to a specific example here. So if we're back to the patient 
And let's look at vaccines. You know, we're all in agreement here on this, so it's not a vaccine debate. But if your goal today or next week or through the next few months is to counteract the anti-vaccine hysteria that's out there, how do you address that specific issue? How do you connect with patients? And how do you do it in a way that's meaningful but also measurable if you were going to take that one goal? If I was going to take that one goal, which is a, should be a massive goal of every single pediatrician in this country, I mean, every single physician in this country, the first thing we got to ask ourselves is why it even exists. You know, why is it that there is an anti-vaccine population in this country? Why is it that there are still people out there that don't trust modern medicine? And you're not going to get there by trying to find some, you know, statistically based study. You're just not going to. You're going to get there by actually thinking about the economics of health, the economics of human thought and saying, you know, why do people think the way they do? And so if I was going to tackle that, the one thing that I would do, the one thing that I that I like to do is to engage them, not with anger, not with satire, not by making fun of them, but, but simply asking, why do you feel this way? Or can you please tell me where you got that opinion? And I'll give you an example to kind of just hammer this concept home. When I was a third year in residency in Seattle, I remember we were at Harborview Medical Center. There was an incident, uh, a trauma case, and the, the patient was four years old. I'm not going to go into too much detail to protect her identity. But, you know, I, I was rounding on these patients at night. Nurse comes up to me and says, hey, just so you know, the patient in that room, do not bring up vaccinations. Because we went up there and talked to this girl about getting her tetanus shot because there was a, you know, there's a traumatic injury. And her dad was furious. And I was like, get out. Like, I don't want to talk about it. We're not vaccinating. So she warned me about it. I said, okay, fine. I walked in the room, and the minute I walked in, this guy looked at me, and he's like, don't you dare talk to me about vaccines. <laughs> and I was like, bro, I didn't even say anything. I didn't even tell you my name, but I could tell offhand he had just been so tired of being antagonized. So at that moment, you, you, got, this, you got this like split in your thought, where part of you might want to pick up this dad and shake him and be like, how could you do this to your daughter? But then the other part of you wants to be like, hold on, this is a human that has an opinion. I am also a human that has an opinion. I have also been at a car dealership and screamed when they wanted to overture me for my broken belt. But you got to understand that you're dealing with someone that did not necessarily get your background, your education, and they still formed an opinion. You got to respect that. So what I said to this dad was, I was like, listen, we're not talking about vaccines right now. You and I are actually on the same page where we just want what's best. You know, I actually sat down with him, pulled up a chair and said, listen, you know, I am not here right now to lecture you about vaccines, but I do think that we can learn from one another. And I would actually, I'm not even going to say anything back to you. I just want to hear what your thoughts are and where you got the opinion, honestly. And he kind of looked at me with this weird look like, you know, like, is there like an ambush waiting for me? <laughs> but I got him to talk about it. And he actually told me a story about a friend of his at church and, you know, something that she told him and how you know, he really built it in his mind and how when he Googled, he was able to find articles that supported his opinion. And it was enlightening for me. And so what that moment taught me was that there are parents out there that are not necessarily anti-vaccine. They're vaccine hesitant. They're kind of sitting there and they're saying, all right, hold up. I don't have a formed opinion, but I've heard pro and I've heard con. Those are the parents that we need to be better at engaging. And we need to find out what it is exactly that they're afraid of. And I'm going to cite an article, but there's an article that Dr. Doug Opal from Seattle Children's Hospital wrote. And what he basically looked at was kind of the way we address the vaccine population. You know, and he looked at two methods. One of them was a presumptive method by saying, hey, we're getting shots today. And another one was participatory. What do you think of shots? And we, he actually found that the presumptive method by saying, hey, we're getting shots today actually converted more parents into actually being okay with vaccination. The reason why is I think the public wants to know that in our eyes, there is no debate. In our opinion, there is no, you could do this, you could do that. 
And so by by collectively standing together and not alienating, understanding where they're coming from, but actually being, you know, being a bit forceful about it and saying, we actually know the science supports this. I think that actually makes a large difference. You know, when they know that the medical community sort supports something, but we're also not alienating them. We're also saying, well, you know, hey, if you want to have a conversation, I'm here all day long. Um, if we have time, I'll give you another story about being here all day long. But in 2015, when SB, SB 277 was in large talks in California, that's about mandated vaccines for school-aged children. Right. You know, I had some fun with it on Instagram. We all have fun on Instagram. I made a couple cartoons. And, and I woke up one morning. It was 4th of July, 2015. My phone was blowing up. All my friends said, did you see the meme that's going around the internet about you? Huh. And I was like, oh, God, I've become a Kardashian. And so <laughs> yeah, I went online, and this Instagram, this Instagram handle called Vegan Takeover, not that I'm making fun of vegans right now, but it's called Vegan Takeover, had, had retweeted a meme about me. And it was a picture of me at Seattle Children's Hospital, and it said, promotes vaccination, knows nothing about heavy metal toxicity. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I emailed my mentors in residency, and I said, look at this nonsense. And all of them said to me, you know, take it as a grain of salt. Or someone said, don't even engage them. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do something different. I'm going to engage them. And so I, write, I, went, I went right on the Instagram handle. I saw the sea of comments, and I posted to them. I said, next time, can you at least use a picture with better lighting? <laughs> and then underneath that, I wrote, by the way, I'm at Alok Patel MD on Instagram. I would love to have a conversation. And about 12 of them came after me. Some of them were hostile than another. One of them said, we're going to still be here all day long in parks, and we'll spit on you. But a few of them actually came at me and said, you know, I read this article, and I took, a, I took a second, I read their article, and we actually were able to have a normal conversation. And in the end, a few of them actually wrote me thank you notes. One of them, who was staunchly anti-vaccine, at the end of it said, you know what, let me say thank you for taking a second to actually read what I, what I read and telling me that your opinions about it. And it was actually about the HPV vaccine. I explained to him why I did not agree. He actually wrote back and said, you actually make a lot of sense. Thank you for not yelling at me. <laughs> And so, I mean, I'm not saying everyone can do this. It takes a lot of time. You know, it takes dedication. And some people have to be okay with the fact that they may get yelled at. But I think by remembering that at the end of the day, we're humans talking to humans. We go through the same fight, the same struggle. We can actually make headway in topics that are as controversial as vaccination. That's really interesting. And I know some of our viewers are listening right now. And that right there alone is a reason for them to stay as far away from Twitter as they possibly can get. <laughs> and, I, and I can't blame them. And and and. In all truth, Keith and I have actually been experimenting with Twitter ourselves lately. We're trying to learn it, and I think there's a lot of potential there. And I want to get back to what we were talking about, but because we're here, you've been very active on Twitter, Instagram. Give our, our skeptical audience, not all of them are, but some of them are, why should they consider these tools as a part of their practice? What, what is actually valuable about them? Because some of them do think, you know, I could be humiliated online. I could have somebody take control of my conversation or my message. I don't have the time for this. What, what would be your argument, just why they should give it a shot? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with people that would be afraid of Twitter and what would happen. And what I openly tell some of my, my older colleagues that don't want to go on Twitter is you're not going to get in trouble unless you go asking for it. A large reason why some of my mentors tell me not to engage with a controversial audience is because they're going to come after you. So just don't engage with them. If that's, if that's not your cup of tea, don't. But what I will say about Twitter is there's a lot to learn about what the average person is thinking right now. And especially when you have things like tweet chats, 
where people are on Twitter all across the world and sharing articles and thoughts about specific health topics, there is a lot to learn about what people actually care about. Because the truth is not every story that comes across a producer's desk is actually going to be important to a consumer. And like I mentioned earlier, we don't really understand that in health. But things that trend on Twitter, as stupid as it may be, are actually important to our audience. And they actually are important to public health. And so, you know, if, if we see a new policy enacted that regards healthcare legislation, you can actually go on Twitter and see what the pulse is right now. You can actually go on Twitter right now and say, wow, this is what everyone thinks. This is the tweet that got the most retweets. It, whether I like it or not, that's actually what this internet generation is feeling. And so it depends on what your exact what your exact practice is all about in medicine. But for those physicians out there that are in a private practice and are trying to recruit patients, social media is a phenomenal place to show that you have a personality and to actually show that, hey, I'm a normal person and you can come to me with whatever opinion you have or whatever background you have and we can actually have a normal conversation and form a bond. I think that's very big for this generation that is on Twitter. You know, it, it goes back to the saying I said earlier, it's not where you want your patients to be, it's where your patients are. And if they're online and they're looking at Snapchat, they're looking at Instagram, they're looking at Twitter, they will resonate with a physician office that's on there that has pretty aesthetics and a cool personality. That's why some of these larger hospitals and larger organizations actually hire social media people for marketing. People wanna see stories on Twitter and Instagram of patients. They wanna see patient testimonials. They wanna see videos. They wanna feel that they're gonna go somewhere that actually gets them. And that's what I would say for anyone that's in involved in branding and wanting to know that they're a doctor that understands what people are all about. Now, if you're someone that enjoys a firefight like I do, and you actually enjoy this stuff, Twitter is just a great place to engage with people that you may not get access to. So through Twitter, I've been fortunate enough um, with ABC News and Dr. Richard Besser, who's now at Robert Wood Johnson, to interact and ask questions directly to healthcare leaders all over the world. I mean, these are people with the CDC, the WHO, with UNICEF, the Gavi Institute, name it. And I've actually gotten to ask directly a question, get an opinion, share an article. I've been able to share an article that I've written to you know, people all over the world and, and kind of hear their thoughts about these things. You just can't do that without Twitter. It's a very phenomenal use of it. You know, The Melinda Gates Foundation will send out articles all the time, and you can read these testimonials from people that are in the field you know, use, doing the practice that we do every day, but in different populations, it's just a great place to be. Um, and then the last example I will give about why I personally <laughs> enjoy Twitter so much is we keep talking about controversial topics. And I will tell you that if you go on Twitter and you talk to anyone that's in the anti-vaccine category, you talk to any e-cigarette lobbyist, oh my gosh, e-cigarettes, you talk to people that are pro-gun, so that are anti-gun advocacy, you will learn a lot about where they're getting their information from. And what that does in turn is it really helps me frame my next discussion. You know, when last year there was a lot of e-cigarette news that came out from the CDC, as it should, and I was hunted on Twitter for almost the better part of eight months by pros e-cigarette folks in Europe. Wow. And, you know, I don't ask. I, I, if any of them are listening to me right now, like, let's all be friends and get cocktails in Manhattan. But seriously, they would come after me on a daily basis and the only reason why I was okay with it is I learned a lot about what they're actually peddling, what the marketing actually shows to the teens that see e-cigarettes as safe. I was like, oh, my God, I get it so much more now because the opposition came and showed me their secrets. I mean, when they're coming after you, are there ever personal attacks? Is it uh, mostly just bogus studies about nicotine? I mean, what, what are they doing? I mean, I've gotten, I've gotten 
personal attacks before. I'm not going to point fingers at anyone in particular. Sure. Just, you know, you know, little name calling here and there, which is like, fine, great, bring it on. But mostly it's been people showing me studies. And some people actually send me a study and be like, hey, you know, to be honest, here's why I disagree with your comment about the measles outbreak at that population in Minnesota. Like, look at this instead. Or, you know, some people, well, someone sent me this crazy picture and it was like a animated photo of Bill Gates, you know, using the polio vaccine for population control in sub-Saharan Africa. Gosh. And I was like, first of all, this is ludicrous. But second of all, there are people that actually believe this. And so, you know, it comes, I, I use the word attack loosely, but it comes in many different forms. Wow. So give us a little bit of a behind the scenes look here. So if you're the producer at ABC News and you're looking at social media traffic, you're looking at stories that not only are going to resonate with your audience, but are going to keep your audience. I mean, it's a business too, and they do have to have viewers to, to keep going. Do you feel that today there's more of a reaction to what's trending? And how can you drive an issue that you do believe is important if it's not front and center in the public discussion? Oh my gosh, phenomenal questions. So to, the, to your first point, topics that are trending and I'm not, when I say trending, I just don't mean on Twitter, I mean everywhere, will get traction in the national news spotlight. Your biggest examples are going to be Ebola, Zika, healthcare reform. Those are just the three that come off the top of my head. And, you know, any, I hate to say this, but any topic that's going to cause fear and hysteria is going to get traction. People are scared. People want to know, is this coming here? Do I need to move? Am I allowed to go on my vacation to Miami or am I going to get Zika virus? Those kind of topics are what really resonate with producers. And I'm not, that's not, I'm not just saying at ABC News, but it's with anyone. If people are online and Googling flu epidemic or they're Googling you know, Zika virus, we're going to see traffic driven up there. Companies are running to jump on board and create their own video related to Zika solely to get ratings. Like you mentioned, I get it. It is a ratings game at the end of the day. So keeping ratings in mind, going to your second point, there are as any physician, any scientist, anyone in this industry can attest to, there are so many more articles and studies that come out there that get no actual traction than we can even count. I mean, almost every day there's a study that I wish would be front and center on USA Today well, that will never get picked up. And the way I personally think that we get those to the limelight is we got to, again, we have to look at what actually resonates with our viewers. If we're not going to use a bogus headline and scare people, which I don't endorse, We've got to make them laugh. We've got to make them cry. We have to make them relate to it. We have to give them something to attract them other than wagging a finger of biostats in their face. You know, and so personally, and you know, everyone can attest to this. Any, any video online of a baby elephant running through water is going to go viral. You know, it, that video of that cat like riding on the Roomba or, you know, just something crazy, like people are going to watch it and they're going to laugh at it. You take that same type of modality and you put it in with health People will watch it. People will watch it because they want to be entertained. They want to make sure that the two minutes of time of their life they gave to your video, they're, they're not going to be wasted. And I'll give you a great example. You know, last year on April Fool's Day, ABC News, we're talking about doing a video about the science of lying. What actually happens in your brain when you tell a lie? You know, people were like, hey, that's kind of cool. Might be a nice article, but it wasn't really getting that kind of push that we wanted. So I sat down with our team and I said, what do we do here? Let's create something that relates to the science of lying so that we can turn this to a front and center topic. So what we did was uh, we sat down with Whoopi Goldberg and we played a poker game. And while during the poker game, we had the foremost leader of poker tells watching her. And he was actually able to make these comments about her behavior based on 
whether or not she was bluffing. Whoopi laughed, completely laughed about it. We had a ton of fun. And all of a sudden, science came to life. And then we went to the streets in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, microphone in hand, man on the street style. And I went up to people and I simply said, what do people lie to their doctors about? And our answers were hilarious. Everyone had something to say. People were like, oh my gosh, about having sex, about doing drugs. I don't work out. And everyone had a response. So all of a sudden, we bring up this public health topic. We're talking about the science of lying. But everyone that watched it actually smiled. They laughed about it. They said, that's hilarious. And so I think really trying to understand what we personally enjoy watching and then implying that to medical, your medical videos, your blogs, your, your practices, tweets, anything like that is kind of a step forward to getting this information that might be boring to some into the mainstream. So um, funny thing about doctors, as you've seen, is that we, we come in different sizes and different shapes. And um, it's uh, hard to get some of the more staunch surgeons, for instance, to break down and, and try to be funny with their patients or try to get through to them with, with uh, different techniques. Is there something that you could recommend? Is there, is there a formula that you could, you could say that w would enable to translate what you just told us to a person's practice, do you think? Absolutely. I, don't, I think the biggest thing is to remember that we don't have to be funny. You yeah. know, you just, you just have to bond with someone. I, so I took an improv class at the Upright Citizens Brigade in Manhattan. And one of the biggest things they taught professionals, including doctors, is they said, you are the funniest when you try your hardest not to be funny and you try to just have a conversation. Totally true. And so by just engaging a patient, you know, how was your day? Nice pair of shoes. Oh, you have a Celtics shirt on. I'm a Cavs fan. The smallest thing like that to get a smile will actually just start to break down a few barriers. And the minute they see you as a person and not just a physician, I feel like the toughest patients all, all of a sudden don't be, become that tough anymore. Okay. Now, people will probably hear this and say, this 32-year-old doesn't know what he's talking about. He hasn't been in my shoes. And that's probably true. I haven't been in every population. I'm not a surgeon. But I, I can say, if you look at yourself in any stressful situation, if you've been on a flight where that then you've been stressed out or if you've been you know, in a store and something's sold out, if someone just bonds with you for a quick second, either with a joke or a personal comment, you just feel that little amount of levity. It makes everything easier. And... Um... Do you think that we should be concerned about what about the power of social media in terms of education when it comes to medical education? I mean, are we looking at medical students who've come up um, only wanting to see what they what engages them, only wanting to see what is funny, only wanting to see what makes them cry or makes them feel, and uh, not necessarily able to look at the boring statistics. And so making opinions on uh, visceral things rather than than intellectual decisions. Oh, I, I, I think we totally should be concerned about that. But the problem is that we're not going to do anything about it. Right. So you, I mean, in the words of, I think, Bugs Bunny, if you can't beat him, you might as well join him. And so when we have people growing up right now in a social media generation and they're getting their information from there, we have to cater to it. You have to at least acknowledge it. Right. Really good example that I can give is, you know, in some medical schools kind of in the, the mid 2000s, when they started podcasting lectures, a lot of these old school professors were like, no, nah, I'm not OK with this. Like you have to show up to class. I don't want things podcasted. But they started to eventually see that there's a different generation coming up now. And kids are still going to get their, the right information if you just meet them where, the, where they learn best, like where they're going to get their information from, what's going to resonate with them. And so I totally agree. I think it is tough. And God, I, I'm so glad that I'm not a college student right now with the noise of Twitter 
And, you know, Facebook only started when I was halfway through college, but I can only imagine how much clutter there is when people are trying to form an opinion about what field to go into. You know, if you if you were a pre-medical student and you were like, hey, I want to learn public health, let me go on Twitter, you are not going to find the real topics that should matter in public health. You're going to find everyone else's opinion. And if we recognize that and we can properly mentor people, I think we can make headway. So you made a good point. This is not going away. And really, it's not unlike having a website uh, about 10 years ago. If you're a practice without a website, you could make it 10 or 15 years ago. Now you have to have one. And really, social media is becoming the same way. You have to have a presence out there because if you're not there, they're not going to see you. So I think for our audience who's, who are starting to you know, jump on board with that kind of thinking, say, okay, I'm willing to consider this. They're also listening and thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Have Whoopi Goldberg come on ABC News and do a segment with you. But that's not obvi- – obviously, I don't know Whoopi Goldberg. I don't think Keith does. Maybe he does. But uh, <laughs> get for the, the smaller town physician or just a, a community physician or someone in, a, in another city outside of New York or L.A., if they are thinking about putting their hat in the ring, so to speak, getting their voice out a little bit more, maybe getting involved with local media, starting on Twitter – What's your advice to just get started and what, what should they be looking at? And then what should they be potentially aware of that could be some pitfalls to that? Absolutely. So, you know, I got to say, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert at Twitter. And I also am not, you know, I don't have like 10, 20, 30,000 followers, but I think the first thing that I would tell any physician, which I have, I've got some older physician friends and they've asked me, why should I be on Twitter? And I say, well, what is one thing that you, what is one goal you have? Right now that, you know, that you need to see through or that you want to solve. And some people told me I want, I want to connect more with the people in my town. Or, you know, I would love to get messages out about this medication, whatever it may be. I think the first thing before any physician jumped on social media was to define a goal. And my goal is different than everyone else's. Like, I wanted to know what was happening as I've rambled on in this podcast with, you know, the younger thoughts in our country. Another physician might say, you know what, my goal is to connect with large organizations in my small town. And what physicians need to realize is every single major organization has a Twitter account. They all do. And it's the easiest way, aside from walking into their office, to bounce an idea, bounce an article, say hi to, respond to. It's a great way to connect with people. So I would honestly say that taking a step back and saying, you know, this is my specialty, this is my practice, what, what is it that I need to get out of marketing. So at the end of the day, Twitter is a phenomenal news channel, but it also is a great way to connect with anyone. If you were to have that tool set, what would you do with it? And I think when people can start to step back and answer that question, they start, they start to really say, okay, like that's a, that's a way to go. And then avoiding pitfalls, like I mentioned earlier, I, there's not going to be a huge pitfall unless you go looking for one. You know, and unless you want to go and engage, you're not really going to get that kind of heat on Twitter, which is why the majority of the banter, the professional banter you see on Twitter is going to be with, you know, policymakers, news reporters, because they are the ones that are posting things that piss people off. So you won't necessarily do that if you don't want to. I think it's a very safe place. You know, and I'll even take one step back. Even if you don't ever want to pursue anything on Twitter and you just simply want to see what it's all about, you can make an account and you can follow the top 100 people that you want to, that and whose opinion you might want to learn from. And you can take a step back every day on your you know, your morning walk into the office and just look at your newsfeed and be like, oh, that's what the CDC is up to. That's what my favorite reporter is doing. That's what my favorite comedian thinks about his morning breakfast, et cetera. And just kind of get an idea and just kind of gradually ease into it. 
Not to mention medical journals, um, societies, and of course, medical schools. I mean, they all have them now. It's just a good way to keep up with things that you would be keeping up with otherwise. Just try it yeah, through this I, medium. It's a good way to start. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because so tweet chats, tweet chats are a phenomenal way for public health practitioners, health and doctors to get involved on Twitter. And so I'll just explain that real quick because I know there's someone out there that doesn't understand what tweet chats are, and I didn't either until a couple of years ago. But basically, any type of large organization, whether it be a magazine or you know a support group, anything will go on Twitter and say, hey, at this time every week, we are going to talk about substance abuse, the opioid epidemic, back pain, anything. And we're going to use the hashtag, this hashtag, to discuss this topic. So you could be a, an oncologist that studies T-cell therapy and only cares about that, and there is a hashtag for you. There is a place for you to connect with other like-minded individuals across the Twitter sphere share articles, make a friend, and at least get your voice out there. And, you know, a lot of the conferences people go to, they also have their own Twitter accounts. And they want to see you post pictures. They want to see you hashtag. You know, to add a little levity to this conversation, at Pediatric Academic Societies, San Diego, 2015, I won an iPad for, you know, tweeting a picture with their hashtag on it. And it's really funny because people are like, you're so lucky. And I was like, actually, I'm not, because I guarantee you half these people aren't on Twitter. (laughs) So it was... It wasn't really a fair fight. <laughs> How do you find the hashtags? You know, when you start adding these public health organizations, you start adding, you know, journals and figures, you'll see them. They'll post them on your newsfeed. You follow JAMA Pediatrics, you will see them them post something. You know, if you were following ABC News for the lo- for the larger part of the last five years, you would see Richard Besser's tweets come out and say, hey, you know, every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hashtag ABC News, you know, tweet chat. You'll see that stuff. So and I know you're not an attorney here, so I'm not asking you a legal question, just more of an opinion. But I've noticed a lot of physicians who are online will put, do not give medical advice. This is not, I don't officially represent so-and-so medical university. What's your feeling about that? Because if you start getting into this, it's very possible, especially a discussion about uh, back pain or knee pain, patients are getting involved, and you might feel very tempted to give some advice. Um, what should you be aware of there as a physician and what should you try to avoid? I think, I think being very clear that we aren't there for medical advice is extremely important. You know, I know a lot of us don't enjoy how much we're kind of pushed around by lawmakers and by what the actual letter of the law is in this country. But truth be told, we would never want someone on Twitter to read a tweet and say, oh my gosh, this article is everything I need for back pain and then have an undiagnosed paraspinal tumor. That is an extreme example. But Twitter is not for medical advice, and you can't assume that everyone knows that. And we see it. People will, t- people will tweet questions. People will tweet things to doctors and will say things like, you know, my child has been doing X, Y, and Z. What do you think? And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> this is not the forum for that. And so I, I think, yes, avoiding a lawsuit, in, if that were to come about in some way or form, is important. But it's also important to do due, due, due diligence. Which is why some people will say things like retweets are do not mean endorsement. Because if you retweet something, you may be retweeting it because you want to engage an audience. You're not retweeting it because you're like, hey, everyone, I agree with, you know, Angelman 55. And so we, we do need to protect, you know, our institutions. We do need to be professional on Twitter. And we do need to make sure that we're not trying to, you know, skirt people away from actually seeing their primary care doctors and taking care of themselves. 
we, we have to avoid that. And I, so I would agree with, I would agree with the statement that you just gotta, you gotta watch your back a little bit. And you know what? I gotta make this point. The younger generation really, really needs to understand how getting involved early in Twitter and Facebook can harm your career if you're not careful. Right. I mean, that is something that I can't tell you how many residents we talk to about that. And to this day, I still see tweets and, and Facebook posts that violate HIPAA. And we'll usually private message someone and be like, are you out of your mind? And these, you know, these are these are people that are not reading about the 15 identifiers that are legally binding for HIPAA compliance. And they will post things and be like, oh my gosh, this 16 year old girl, you know, got drunk and do X, Y, and Z. And now I have to go to work and you can be terminated for doing that. And so that's a little different than your question about medical advice. That's called, you got to maintain HIPAA. Like HIPAA in the Twitter sphere and Facebook is huge. And, you know, there was just, I'm not going to go into the specific story, but there was a, a nurse in New York City who was actually fired uh, recently. And it was off an Instagram post. And so you can't assume that people are going to look at your post and be like, oh, it's innocent. If it can violate someone, this is America, someone will sue you. We sue people for everything here. And that's a good point. On the same token, if you have a social media person who could also be your front desk manager at the office actually managing your account, you've got to watch them as well. You've got to be very careful about what they're doing on there. They may be very well-meaning and trying to help a patient, but they may inadvertently violate HIPAA, patient's privacy, or potentially put your practice at risk, right? Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think, I think at the end of the day, it's what people told me when I first started getting in the trying to get in more of a public sphere and share my pain, people are like, you know what, just use your brain. And one, one person even told me, they said, think about your, think, I want you to assume that your chair of pediatrics is reading every tweet and every Facebook <laughs> post you have. So, you know, if you're posting something at a beer pong party, you may not want to, because your chair <laughs> will probably look at that and be like, yeah, he's not mine anymore. <laughs> and so honestly, I think, I think the majority of people that would work in an office setting and be willing to manage a social media account are hopefully aware enough about that unless they want to sabotage you. And if they want to do that, you're in trouble and I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, we're going to move on to some of the other things that you're working on right now as we finish up. But one more question, because this is important. And I, I've, I've followed you on online and I've read some of your posts. I know you're not afraid to go ahead and, and engage in political discussions or engage in some of the issues that are going on. So my question would be, one, I think I know the answer already. Do you think physicians should be vocal in these areas? And when they are, just as you are, what should they be very careful about? Um, because it can be very tempting and emotions get high when we start talking about this, especially with all that's going on in the news today. Just tell us about your thoughts about physicians voicing their opinion in, in national health care debates and um, in politics. Oh, man. Aside from the fact that some physicians don't have the time to, I think every single physician should be vocal when it comes to politics and when it comes to all things related to the healthcare policy that govern our jobs. And if any physician says, I don't want to be involved, they have to then admit that they obviously don't care how their job is steered by healthcare reform, which is not the case. You know, if it's reimbursement you're worried about, burnout, your ancillary staff, how many patients you see a day, all that stuff, it inevitably is going to be shifted a little bit by healthcare reform. And so physicians need to realize that policymakers, voters, they're kind of pushing us around a little bit. And it's affecting our ability to take care of patients. And so I think the first thing that physicians need to realize is that we do not have the loudest voice 
when it comes to this topic. We just don't. If you actually go in and you watch your nightly news, or you go and look at any of your online sites, you're going to see very big, broad headlines. You'll see something like, the majority of physicians don't agree with the American healthcare plan. Great. I'm glad the majority don't agree. But tell, give me some specific stories. Give me an anecdote. Everyone knows that anecdotes stick. You know, If someone sees a story and they're like, wow, that's me, that actually makes an opinion. The New York Times wrote a great piece a few weeks ago, and they profiled several people with a pre-existing condition. And they talked about how their conditions would change before and after an a, a potential ACA repeal. Now, if a physician was out there and said, hey, let me tell you exactly how my practice changed after Obamacare, or let me tell me how, how my practice has been negatively affected or anything, a personal story, that actually makes a very big impact. And you know, to be honest, I don't feel that most physicians should be scared to, shell, to, to share an objective story. If it actually happened to you, if it actually changed the way you see patients, if it changed your follow-up, share the story. Not everyone can actually read a healthcare bill and immediately put two and two together. As far as being careful, you know, I really, really don't like this reality, but some people are, some physicians, and I'll give you an example, are actually afraid of their governing bodies. And the example I'll give you is we made a video a few weeks ago around the time when, you know, things were reaching a boiling point in good old Washington, D.C. about healthcare reform. And what the, the, what the prompt was, was should the Affordable Care Act be tweaked or repealed? And I wanted to talk to physicians from all over the country. To be fair, I wanted to hear pro and con. I wanted to hear people that hated the ACA because it's, that, it's fair. There are doctors that don't like it. And it's funny because some of the doctors that came out and said, you know what, I'm all for the ACA, but I can't do this interview because I work for a practice and the majority of the old dudes here are 100% against it. So I'm actually not comfortable. And that sucks. You know, for lack of a more professional word, that really sucks because you all of a sudden are having, you got these doctors that might feel a little hampered and don't feel comfortable actually voicing themselves because there is this body above them that's saying, hey, be careful because the people that are pouring money into this clinic will not like you if you go against it. And I honestly, I respect that because at the end of the day, it is a business. But the way I feel we go around that is we have to get out there and tell more personal stories. We have to get people to connect with what we're going through on a daily basis. This goes back to this first thing I, I was talking about when I said, I'm not the biggest fan of these burnout articles. But if you were to write how this proposal will lead to more burnout, someone would actually make a step back and be like, oh, okay. So you know what? Their, their clinic lost this level of reimbursement. Their patients no longer have follow-up. These patients are flooding the emergency departments. This makes sense to me now. And so I would respectfully ask all the physicians that have way more experience and knowledge and insight than I do to teach us young manic idealists their ways and get out there and share some personal stories. Because when we did this interview, I will tell you that what I heard from some of our veteran physicians was just enlightening. I mean, some of these guys that are in their 60s, 70s, were telling me stories about healthcare as it has shifted from the 80s, 90s to present time. And th that just has to be on the internet. That has to be something that everyone's reading every day. Are you and um, others who are doing reporting like your like yours, are you a clearinghouse for these stories? Uh, should our listeners send our, their stories to you to, to look through and maybe uh, start getting them into the media? Um, you know, if they don't want to go on to social media themselves. You know, I'm not a clearinghouse. I wish I had that power. Maybe in like a few years, we will mm -hmm. have some big brand and we can do that. But I am always open 
to chat with someone and kind of share ideas. I got to remind everyone that I'm by no means an expert, but I'm passionate about this field. And I think it's, it's always a good thing to connect with like-minded individuals. I have some incredible mentors out there that have taught me a lot. You know, people like Richard Besser and Doug Opal and Wendy Sue Swanson and Paul Offit and these, I've learned everything that I know from these mentors. And if I could share ideas or even mentor a medical student or someone that wants to get into this space, I'm always happy to do that. Perfect. Well, we're going to get the, uh, some of the links up to your Twitter accounts, email and things, ways people that can reach out to you at the end of the show. And of course, on the show notes, we are getting close to the end of the, the show here, but we do want to touch on a couple more things. Um, you're a busy guy, Alok. I mean, there's no question about it. It was tough to get you on. We were, we were working on the schedule for about a week now. I mean, in addition to everything we've talked about today, you're still a practicing physician and you're really working very hard on a new company that has to do a lot with what we've discussed today, and that's patient communication. Tell us what you're up to there and what, uh, what, you're, uh, what you guys are hoping to accomplish. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, so basically, the company's called Medumo, M-E-D-U-M-O. The name was kind of derived from medical education modules, and it was actually founded by two close friends of mine, um, Dr. Adil Yang and Dr. Omar Badri. And what they were basically tired of simple problem. They said, you know what? Paper instructions don't work anymore. Simple problem. And I think that is the case study for any physician that wants to start a brand, a blog, a company, whatever. Like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Sounds like Mark Cuban Shark Tank. And so we, we got together and over the course of about six months, I joined their founding team with about six other people. And we said, okay, we actually can quantify the problem with paper instructions. We can actually look to see these patient errors that cost healthcare dollars and healthcare time. And we decided, what if we built an app? But then we found out that, you know what? Patients don't necessarily download apps. And they don't necessarily log in to these fancy web portals. They just want the right education at the right time. They want it to be convenient for them. And so what we wound up doing over the course of last year is we created automated digital patient instructions for treatment and procedures that automatically go to your phone or your email if you prefer that. And we have found a phenomenal uh, effect on user engagement. And the way it basically works is, like I, like I mentioned earlier, is we ask patients. We said, you know what, how do you get your instructions? You know, why did you not follow through with that specific you know, medication plan? They're saying, you know, I lost my instructions. Or, you know, I didn't have time to log into this thing. I, didn't, I called outpatient and no one picked up the phone. And so by just delivering the right text messages, they follow along with it. And the biggest case study that we have to date is we have over 2,000 patients enrolled right now at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston for our colonoscopy kind of prep tour. What that basically means is when you go to your PCP or your GI doctor and you say, you know, it's time for my colonoscopy or they tell you it's time for your colonoscopy, your doctor can then say, hey, you know what, by the way, I'm going to text message you. I'm going to text message you the instructions for preparing your prep. And for any, anyone out there that's either gotten a colonoscopy or is a GI doctor, we all know that it's not the easiest thing in the world to drink that prep. And so we send them these automated text messages that guide them through the process. And we have found a huge reduction in the failed bowel prep rate for these hospitals. And this, this will equate to millions of dollars annually in you know, saving GI doctors from rescheduling things, saving anesthesia time and small things like that. So you know, it's really funny. It's not a very complex solution, but it's extremely elegant delivery. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on the founding team. I'm saying that because sometimes the most simple solution works. We won the Boston Scientific 
um, connected patient data challenge in Boston. And, you know, we got someone made a great joke and they were like, you know what, you guys had the most simple solution. <laughs> Why don't we just send patients text messages, make them automated. And, you know, we're white labeled. And so hospitals can put their logo all over it because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, hospitals want to, they want to keep their own patients. They want to market. And I am, to any users out there, I am more than happy to have a chat about, you know, either an indication for Medumo or if anyone wants to chat about automated patient instructions, I think it really is kind of tapping into where patients are. You know, I, we've talked to a lot of patients being like, I'm really busy. I have no idea how to prep for this. I have no idea what to do with this. And, and doctors are frustrated. They, they want a solution that's not that labor intensive. And so, you know, by, by really investing this, we've, we've learned a lot about patient behavior. It kind of makes me feel like I'm just getting into the world of economics, the way people think. We've learned a lot about patient behavior. We've also learned a lot about the very small ways we can improve clinician workflow. And at the end of the day, everybody wins. Hospitals win, patients are happy, doctors enjoy having their patients feel like they're empowered and like they know what's going on. And all the people that are in public affairs are like, hey, this is great. Our logo is Yeah, this it. is really cool. I mean, I'm looking at your website right now, and I see, do not take aspirin before your surgery. I'm just thinking how many times I've seen that happen and cause problems in the past with doctors I've worked with, patients not 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 following instructions to taking aspirin before the surgery. So it's it's, it's, it's not that complex not, of a message, you know, but, so, but it helps. Give me an idea here. So is this just a standard set of text messages for a particular procedure, like a ACDF, or is this scraping information from the medical records? I mean, how, how are these messages actually tailored to each patient? Yeah, so what we do is we look at, we look at procedures that are high volume that tend to have a conserved set of instructions. So that could be anything from colonoscopy to knee and hip replacement to perioperative guidance to perinatal lab schedules. And we would build these instructions, these text messages based off the conserved set of instructions, right? And so if any institution comes to us and says, hey, you know what? We've got X amount of patients getting colonoscopies every year. We have a 15% failed bowel prep rate. We then sit down and we look to what they, those GI doctors currently do to prep. We build up the text messages. And then when we actually sit down at the hospital, we spend about a two to four week period implementing this and making sure that the physicians actually like this set of texts that are gonna go out. They agree with it. We can customize the logo, we can customize all the script, we can customize the video content. I can get your native videos on the text messages just to personalize it. And you know, some procedures, they don't need to have HIPAA compliant instructions. Colonoscopy, you're sending the same thing to every patient. We do have a HIPAA, HIPAA compliant company, we have a HIPAA compliant server, and we can tailor these things as somebody wants. It's all based on what the institution wants to do. So we make sure that these, all the content is vetted by you know, industry experts. And fortunately on our team, we've got a pretty strong backend of engineers and programmers to make everything pretty and work. But we, you know, the co-founders were very big in making sure that the clinicians were here. Because anytime you build a company and you think it's a great idea for doctors, you gotta make sure doctors agree too. Because some doctors are like, I don't have an extra five minutes to, you know, to, to do this with my patients. And so we kind of kept that front and center. Doctors are happy. You know, they like the content and it's not adding to their workflow. Well, the salesman in me wants to say, yeah, but think about the 10, five minutes you're going to save by not wasting your time with this at later. I mean, this, it, the idea makes a lot of sense. Uh, I wish you the best of luck here. I think <laughs> does, this is really fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. You know, we, we've got great things happening right now in the, in the Northeast and slowly moving 
moving west. I'd love to tell you more about it, but I think it's non-disclosure. Fair enough. In fair enough. <laughs> well, we got one more question, and we'll let you go. This is one we we've done here for a little bit, and usually turns into a really great question for a lot of people. But tell us about a patient who made an impact on you, changed your perspective, or somehow just kind of stuck in your mind. Could be recent or from a long time ago. <clears throat> so when I was one patient that's always going to stick in my mind because not only does it tap into my side as a provider, but it also taps into this aspect of what would I do or what would I want for my child? As a reminder, I'm an inpatient pediatrician. And so, you know, when we first started taking care of this patient, I was a resident and she was a teenager. She had renal failure. She lost a limb, yet she always maintained this amazing attitude. You know, used to laugh a lot with us. Every time we saw her in rounds, she was making jokes. There's a video game out there called Call of Duty. She used to love to play that and absolutely annihilate every one of us <laughs> on call. But we knew that we knew that she was suffering. And, you know, she was from a small town and everyone in the small town knew her. I'm always wondering, like, how on earth would I be handling this if I was a teenager during the social media age? Because she, we used to sit down every now and then and she would tell me, she's like, you know, the part about this that makes it the hardest when I'm living in the hospital and getting dialysis is going on Instagram and seeing my friends take trips, go to parties, oh. you know, on Christmas morning, they're you know, doing all this fun stuff. And, but at the same time, like she still kind of maintained this great attitude and she's like, well, this is, these are the cards I was dealt. And that experience with her is, is never going to leave my mind because I, I just remember we judge ourselves as doctors and we push ourselves and we take criticism and we all do it on some level of comparison to what the world wants for us or what we are supposed to be. You know, is that professional? Would someone think this about me? And we got these kids especially these kids that are chronically ill, living in hospitals, they're dealing with this BS on social media on a daily basis, and their level of strength in that situation is beyond what I think any of us are going through when it comes to social pressure. And you know, the, the part of the story that really pulls at the heartstring, she really recently turned 18, and she decided she no longer wanted to take dialysis anymore. And so she passed. But she, um, she passed away peacefully, and she passed away with years of experience in knowing what she personally wanted. And that again gets to me because I just, I think about patient autonomy and I think about really taking a step back and removing the medical textbooks and removing like, you know, everything we learned in medical school and just taking a second and just listening to someone and being like, you know, what are you actually going through every day? Yeah. You come to the hospital, you know, we cheer for you. I'll play call of duty with you for hours. Everyone calls you a hero, but when you're by yourself, what are you actually thinking? You know, I can, I can visit patients and give them balloons and cake pops from Starbucks all day long, and that's only going to go so far. You know, are, are we actually listening to patients and their, and their concerns? And so, man, she just encompasses all of that for me. I think she's a big case study for why, you know, medical training is about learning humanities, and it's about learning art and learning culture just as much as it is about learning anatomy and physiology. And if I can end this on just one piece of advice, one of my mentors gave me when I was pre-med, because it just circles completely back to this entire concept. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a doctor. And I, I went to one of my mentors. And I told him, hey, I'm thinking about going pre-med. Would you please give me some advice? And he said, you know what? Everybody wants to be a doctor because they want to help people. And everybody wants to do, be a doctor because they want to be the hero and they want to see the glory of it. I do not want to endorse you until you understand what it's like to suffer or you understand what the process of death looks like. So I kind of looked at him and I'm like, uh, I'm 19 <laughs> years old. I am a little in trouble. 
And so on his advice, I went and became a grievance counselor for seven years for an organization in Tucson called Tunedito back when I was in college. And <laughs> what it took me through was listening to teens, teens and families going through terminal illness and, and actually understanding what, what really meant something to them. Like when they go get medical care, what are they going for? Like what are their, what are their hopes, their desires? What do they go through on a daily basis? And that with this particular patient I'm talking about, it just resonated because she just transcended, you know, your everyday treatment and all of a sudden became this person that I could, I could almost empathize with. And I could say, you know what, like, I can't argue with your decision based on everything you've told me. And so, you know, I think, I think about that case a lot and I hope that story inspires somebody, you know, if they're in such a situation to, you know, take a minute and just bond with someone, just kick back with someone and say, you know what, right for these 30 seconds, I'm not a doctor, I'm a friend. Man, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And Keith, I think that's a good way to end the show. I mean, uh, can't think of a better one. I agree. Um, yeah. Can't top that. Alok, thank you for coming on. Before we go, tell our viewers some ways people can find out more about you, what you're up to with MedYumo, and um, how to follow you. Absolutely. And, you know, and huge thanks to you guys. A lot of things that we talked about were getting physicians out there and getting physicians a voice. So totally appreciate being involved. Happy to do it. For anyone out there, I'm reachable at Alok Patel MD. That's A-L-O-K-P-A-T-E-L-M-D. That's my Twitter handle and my Instagram. Um, fair warning, they are a little rambunctious. You'll see some <laughs> jokes. You'll see some things that you may not like. But I promise you, they're both entertaining. Um, I also have a blog, www.alokpatelmd.com. That's more of a, a place where I share some of my personal thoughts. It's not endorsed by anybody. Um, and Medumo, you can go to www.medumo.com. And like I mentioned... Medumo is really driven by physicians and their brilliant ideas. And so I would love to hear from anyone out there that wants to collaborate, wants to share an idea, wants to run something by me, wants to yell at me, wants to criticize me. Name it. I love to hear from anyone. Well, we're going to get all that up in the show notes for everybody. And I can tell you right now, we're probably going to have to talk you into coming back again. I think there's just so much more we can talk about and definitely want to follow you and see what, uh, where you're headed with the company Medumo. And um, I think it's, it's going to be a great thing. And I really admire what you're, what you're up to, and you're doing the good fight out there. I mean, it's not easy. There's a lot of noise, and there's a lot of criticism that you can expose yourself to when you're doing this. But it's, it's well worth the effort, I think, in the end, and, and I, uh, I thank you for what you're doing. No, I, I appreciate it. You know, I'm at the beginning of my career. Let's talk in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com. <laughs>